Fergal, you're the first man to take advantage of the military history archives to write a ground-up picture of the Easter Rising. Did you find anything new? I mean, there has been other work done on the, the Bureau of Military History Archives, but I suppose this is the first work to really sort of exhaustively comb through hundreds and hundreds of statements. And really, by looking at the Easter Rising from the perspective of the rank and file, you tend to get quite a different view of um, you know what Easter was about. So you get new insights into motivations. You tend to find that ideology, for example, isn't quite as important as it seems to be when you're studying the leaders of the rebellion. Um, you also get quite a lot of new insights into uh, what actually happened both during the mobilization over Easter weekend and also during the rising itself. For example, there was relatively little fighting, so you get a very different sort of picture of what was going on during Easter week and really quite a lot of uh, insights into what the rebels were thinking and what they thought they could achieve with the Rising. Who were the men and women who made the Easter Rising? What was their motivation? Why did they go out and risk their lives, potentially? Well, one of the striking things that you find from a lot of the statements is that an awful lot of rebels didn't really know what was going to happen at the time. The military council organised the Rising with the most uh, extraordinary degree of secrecy. So a lot of rebels, particularly in Dublin, felt that something was going to happen, but they, they didn't really have much of an idea what it was. By the time you get quite close to Easter weekend, there's a sense that a fight is going to take place, but there's still no sense of what kind of fight will take place and also what the prospects of victory would be. You tend to have quite a lot of conflicting opinions. And also, when we think about the rising now, we think in particular about the proclamation of the Republic, whereas quite a lot of the volunteers were surprised about that. Quite a few of them didn't know that the rising was organised by the military council, and many of them had just been ordinary members of the Irish Volunteers. So one thing that comes out very clearly from the papers is what a success the Rising was from a sort of a propaganda point of view in terms of popularising the notion of the fighting as a, a specifically Republican affair, whereas there's much less of a clear sense of the Republican purpose and ideology from, from looking through the witness statements generally. Yeah, I guess the image most of us have of the Easter Rising is of... Uh you know, combat in the burning GPO, fighting the British Army, you know, rifle in hand. But was that, does that really fairly represent the experience of people who took part? Uh, no, it's very misleading, actually. There was a couple of areas where there was a significant, you know, ferocious fighting. The South Dublin Union would be one example. And also the Mount Street battle, which alone accounted for over half of the British Army's casualties. But generally, the position was that you had large numbers of rebels tied up in four or five large buildings, which by and large were surrounded and contained during the week. So you had remarkably little fighting. And the experience of your average volunteer was really often uh, not, not shooting at a British soldier, not even seeing one. The GPO is a good example. I mean, there was no direct combat or attack on the GPO. I mean, it was uh, contained, surrounded, and then bombarded. And most of the casualties that take place in the GPO actually occur during the evacuation. And a, a large number of them were actually self-inflicted with rebels shooting each other in the panic. So what you get again from the witness statements is you sort of see how the, the military aspect of the rising is really not where its significance lies in many respects. There's, there's quite a lot of inexperience and ineptitude and not a great deal of military strategy at work generally. Sure. In the GPO, there are two figures who are, will always be associated with the Easter Rising. That's James Connolly and Patrick Pierce. And with those two, especially with Pierce, there's this idea of the blood sacrifice that 1916 was a grand gesture that they were going to spill their blood for Ireland and somehow spiritually redeem the nation. Does that come across in the, in the archives? You get quite a, 
complicated picture, really. If you look at the general rank-and-file volunteers, and even to a certain extent rank-and-file Fenians, they don't really know what precisely is being planned. and So they don't have a, a clear conception of what the strategic or political or military purpose of any action will be. They're, they're very much sort of um, just kind of following orders, and, and whether it's in the volunteers um, training for some sort of military conflict or within the, the Fenians, organizing and waiting a revolutionary moment. But when you get to look at the sort of the leadership, the people who actually, you know, consciously bring about the rising, the main kind of thinking which unites James Connolly, who obviously comes from the Marxist citizen army tradition, and the, the Fenians generally, people like Tom Clark and Sean McDermott, is just a sort of a sense that something must be done. The war is taking place, the Great War is taking place, and if nothing is done, it'll be just another embarrassment and humiliation. So I think historians have too often wrongly focused on Patrick Pierce, who obviously became the, the figurehead of the Easter Rising, but he's not really a central planner. I mean, at the time in which the IRB make the decision to fight at Easter, which is the autumn of 1914. Pierce has only just joined the Fenians, so he's not really uh, central. But again, p- part of the importance of the Easter Rising is its subsequent sort of mythic importance in emergence of a sort of a Piercean spiritual nationalism. Of course, the blood sacrifice would become very important, but it, it wasn't present at the time in a significant way, apart from a handful of intellectual, sort of middle-class intellectuals like um, McDonough and Plunkett, uh, and Pierce. Sure, but in spite of its military failure, and I mean, it sounds from your research as if it was an utter military failure, the power of the Easter Rising as a myth in the sense of something that people believe in and that inspires people continues certainly for a very long time. Absolutely. You begin to see very quickly in the wake of Easter 1916 that it, it has a, it, it, that the transformation is, is taking place. Although one interesting thing in the immediate aftermath of the Rising, there is a general sense of despondency amongst most separatists. They feel that what was done at Easter was worth doing, but with the execution of the leaders and with the suppression of the IRB and the volunteers, they felt that uh, you know freedom was may, may well, Irish freedom may well be another decade away. But of course, things began to change quite quickly, and within 18 months to two years, Sinn Fein have won the general election. But what, what I argue in my book is that the Easter Rising was particularly successful in popularising the notion that the the proper sort of direction for nationalism or separatism to take was specifically republicanism and that if you look prior to the easter rising republicanism is just one of many different sort of strands within separatism competing for attention i mean does Sinn Féin does the advanced nationalists within the Irish volunteers but because the 1916 was so successful from a propaganda point of view it became almost a given within a couple of years that any future uh, movement for independence should be expressly dedicated to achieving a republic. And Mm. that, of course, while it brings about a certain degree of unity, which is uh, unprecedented, it also brings about problems. Civil war, for example, Mm -hmm. was largely fought because of the inability to, to achieve that republic. Yes. It's funny, the contrast between the mythology or the idea of the Easter Rising and the reality on the ground. How do you think it was the reality was experienced by ordinary Dubliners? Because the picture that many of us have as part of the story that we grew up with is that Dubliners were very hostile to the rebellion. Yeah, I mean, the rebels went to great pains to depict themselves as a conventional military force. But one thing which was, you know, pretty unconventional was the whole notion of staging a rebellion, street fighting in the centre of the city, in a, a built-up area where there was an awful lot of people living, and particularly working-class people, in the slums in the centre of Dublin. And 
unsurprisingly then the general reaction of, of people who live there pretty hostile and during the week there is some indications that some people began to switch opinion as they, they saw uh, just what a serious military stand was taking place but certainly the witness statements you know unambiguously showed that there was enormous hostility to the rebels even at the end of easter week and there's while there's some accounts of individuals showing support by and large just lots and lots of accounts of people spitting assaulting rebels and so on so that that kind of picture is very much confirmed by the witness statements Mm-hmm. My final question, Fergal, is the Irish state has done various things to commemorate the rising over the years. Up to the 1960s, they had very large bombastic parades and so on. Recently, that was revived a little bit. How do you think the rising should be remembered? Oh, it's a difficult question, uh, but I suppose as a historian, I, would, I think it would be nice if more efforts were put into commemorating sort of some of the more historical aspects of the rising. I mean, one thing which I think has been nice to see is that the... Since the, 70, since the 1970s and since the 1980s, and particularly with the peace process, that the commemoration has become a little less loaded and politically contested. But I think, and there was evidence of that, of course, very much for the 90th anniversary, but, you know, personally, I wouldn't be too keen on the sort of the more militaristic ways of commemorating 1916, such as Parade, which was reinstituted. And I think it might be maybe time to place more attention on some of the more radical, progressive social and economic aspects of the proclamation. And one thing which I, I address towards the end of the book is how, in a sense, uh, how radical most of these people were. And it comes across very much from the witness statements. You're looking at young men and women who were, who, were, who were revolutionaries, and some of them were social revolutionaries as well, albeit not all of them. But what happens after 1916, of course, is that 1916 becomes equated very much with a sort of a Catholic, nationalist, conservative tradition, and at its worst, it becomes co-opted by irredentist conservatism and nationalism. So maybe it's time for, through history and through other means, to get back to some of the more radical roots of, of 1916 um, in the lead-up to 2016. OK, Fergal McGarry, thank you very much. Thank you.